he called me up and he said, hey, just wanted to let you know, uh, George loved your song. And in fact, he just got done recording it. Oh, my God. What did that feel like? That conversation right there brought me to tears. Mm -hmm. You know, I hung up the phone and all I could do was I felt thankful, but I also felt uh, a reprieve and not not just by anybody, by the king of country music, by the guy who knows country songs better than anybody at country radio. You know, George Strait himself basically reached down and called me and said, "Uh uh-uh, where are you going? You know, that that made me feel like I wasn't done here, that I still had some more to, to offer up before they just throw me away. Are you ready to decide it's your turn to live your most purposeful, profitable, passionate life? I'm Christina LeCure, former professional golfer turned confidence and success coach. I truly believe every one of us was put here for a God-given purpose, and it is our responsibility to live that fully. For well over a decade now, I've been turning my life as well as countless others around from feeling unworthy, incompetent, and without a purpose to living a life I cannot wait to wake up for, even on days when shit hits the fan. And it all started with a decision. Yeah, you heard that right. I said God and shit in the same sentence. So clearly this won't be your typical podcast, but what I can assure you is that each week myself and my guests are going to enlighten you, fire you up, and having you walk away with stories and strategies to not only boost your confidence, but give you hope that at any moment in time, you have the power to decide it's your turn. Welcome back to the Decide It's Your Turn podcast. You guys, today I am so excited for our guest. He is not only one of my good friends, but he just happens to be a country music, basically superstar in my eyes. Jamie Johnson is on the show today. If you do not know who Jamie Johnson is, immediately stop this podcast. Go Google the songs in color, the dollar just give it away. There's so many songs that Jamie has not only sang, but has written for superstars such as George Strait over the years. And Jamie and I dive in today on so many decisions that he has made throughout his career, even before his career. He is definitely an introvert. And the fact that he said yes to me to do this, I was actually so shocked, but I am greatly humbled because I want everyone to get to know this man a little bit more. I'm honored to call him a good friend, and I know you're going to enjoy today's show. That's the only thing we will admit. We will not talk about humping and we will not talk about politics. But besides that, we'll talk about all the things. Good enough. Oh, good enough. Okay, amazing. Y'all, welcome back to the Decide It's Your Turn podcast. Today, I am so excited. I have one of my good friends who I just found out has never done a podcast before. And once you know who this is, you are going to be unbelievably shocked because this human being is... um kind of famous, even though he pretends like he's not, which is 100% not the truth, due to the fact that he has won numerous uh, CMA awards, uh, ACM awards, all the things. My good friend, Jamie Johnson. Hi. Hello again. How are you? Lovely. (laughs) This goes against everything you believe in, which is doing interviews. And so obviously, I am so excited that you're here today. Well, I, I couldn't say no. So. 
I know you, you texted me randomly and then I asked you and I'm sure you were rolling your eyes going, fuck, I should have never texted her. It's all right. I don't, I don't mind. I, I don't, I haven't done an interview in a long time. So forgive me if I'm a little awkward and you know, I don't mean to be. You're not awkward at all. I love getting to talk to you. You know, I think obviously so many people know you from you're in color and the dollar, which you just told me, which was I'm blown away by is the fact that those didn't do well on the charts, which is so crazy to me because actually I texted you the other night and I was watching The Voice and In Color was one of the season finale songs. And you're like, oh, that's so great. And I'm like, how in the world was that song not number one? I'm just so confused. It's so known. Like, if you don't know the the song In Color by Jamie Johnson, I don't know what rock you live under. Well, um, country radio has... has never really uh embraced me or embraced my my music for for whatever reason uh, when I first started off they told me I was too country maybe they just kind of kept that that stigma over me but uh when in color came out they they just they didn't get behind it they didn't they didn't play it um I don't think it ever made it into the top ten wow but, but now they now they play it all the time, so you know it's evidently uh, made its way uh, as a what do, what do they call it a new country classic or whatever. But which is sweet, I, you know. No, don't get me wrong. I I appreciate I appreciate the people for playing it, and you know. But yeah, at the time it was kind of a bizarre, wondering how this this song that everybody seems to love so much just doesn't. Uh, doesn't get played on the radio. It's so interesting to me. And, you know, I, I've been to so many of your concerts now. Well, not so many, but I know you have loyal diehard, diehard fans and everyone in the audience knows verbatim every single word to every one of your songs. Like you have a absolute following that is, they're so loyal to you and they love you. And it's it's interesting that they don't, get it on the radio because I've seen people like literally every single solitary word verbatim every show you play. First of all, I love them too. <laughs> I, I've always loved live shows. I've always loved playing. Uh, and since I was a, a teenager, I've also enjoyed touring. One of the first gigs I ever had, uh, I, I was in a drum and bugle corps when I was young. I'm going to say about 12, 14 years old uh, and would spend the summertime traveling around in a tour bus playing these different uh, venues competing for this drum and bugle corps. And it just kind of got in my blood, you know, the idea of packing up everything you own, get on a bus, go ride around and and see the whole country, see everything. We We did it all in the summer different town every night and uh I, I think once i got a taste of that i was i was probably condemned to the life of a traveling musician that was <laughs> that was you know now, now it's like my bus is kind of like my pirate ship <laughs> and since <laughs> since march we uh we haven't been able to do it you know we haven't been able to go and you know uh, I'm afraid for at least the the time being shows are uh, 
are a thing of the past. And until this uh, pandemic gets under control, there won't likely be uh, shows the way we used to do them. Randy Hauser and I are talking about doing some acoustic shows together uh, where they're socially distanced. And, you know, if we're going to do them outside, we'll probably have to play some in Florida and South Texas and that sort of thing where people can still go outside in in the wintertime. Well, yeah, you said you played a couple of those shows this summer, which is nice to be able to still do that. I mean, you know, no matter what you think about you being distanced and all the things, we all have to be safe. And the fact that, like, people want connection. People need during this time, people need to have something like you. I mean, their music changes lives. Like music lights people's hearts up. Like this is what you were put on this planet to do. And I think it's, you know, super interesting for those who don't kind of know your background. And I think it's, I think it's definitely a part where everyone needs to kind of know this about you. You say that you've been playing in a traveling band and and playing since you were 14 years old, living on a bus, but there's a big gap in there where you were 100% not, not in music. I remember you told me like what, how you kind of started and how you got into the game late. Like, I'd love for you to talk, talk about that because, you know, this podcast is all about deciding and decisions and you becoming a musician hasn't always happened since you were 14. Well, no, it hadn't, but it's always kind of been, I've been bent in that direction. You know, I went to college uh, at Jacksonville state university, uh, Jacksonville, Alabama, and uh, I wanted, I, I had a music scholarship that, you know, I was trying to turn into something else, but you had to declare a music major to keep the music scholarship, and even if I tried to do a double major, I still had to major in music in order to keep that scholarship, but after, after a couple of years worth of that, I realized, man, I don't, I don't want to teach music. I don't want to be a, a music uh, education professional. Uh, I just want to play. And, uh, I had to, had to figure out a way and, and you know, there, there wasn't another option for me to stay in school. I couldn't afford the tuition, couldn't afford the books and everything else required. So, uh, I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, I kind of, I kind of kid and say, you know, I got got tired of people telling me what to do to keep a scholarship, so I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> Somebody's going to tell me what to do. It's going to be, it's going to be a drill instructor. <laughs> um, when when I joined the Marine Corps, one of the options that the uh, recruiter gave me, he said, "Man, I can probably get you right into the Marine band." <laughs> I kind of laughed. I said, "I." <laughs> I appreciate the offer, but I don't, I don't want to be that kind of Marine. You know, if I'm, <laughs> I don't want to get to the end of my life and somebody say, yeah, what'd you do in the Marine Corps? Hell, I was in the damn band. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I joined the Marine Corps Infantry and uh, became a mortarman, 0341. That's uh, for people who don't know, that's the guy who drops the, the rocket into the tube. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I spent a, spent a few years walking around blowing things up. Oh my gosh. I love it. I actually, I've been on your bus many times and your, um, your Marine 
logo is on all around the bus. It's something that you're so proud of. Obviously, like we all thank you for that. And like, it's just, I think it's just so amazing that that's something that you were willing to do. And then once you got out of the Marines, I'd love for you to kind of talk about that where it was kind of like the decision of, okay, I've, I'm out of the Marines now. What do I do now? And it wasn't direct to music. <laughs> no. Um, so Believe it or not, I'm I'm a bit of a control freak. What? I like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I like to be in control of my my destiny and, and as much as I can. And uh, when I joined the Marine Corps, I didn't I didn't want to be stationed somewhere else for four or five years, and you know, so I I, I joined the reserves so that I could kind of control my active duty uh, assignments, my my time. And in my way, you know, I could sign up for this class, go do that that class for two or three months, and then go right back to Montgomery. Uh, you know, it it just seemed like the best way for me to uh, for me to serve was in that regard. When my active amount of time was over, it was a I did a contract called a six and two. It's a six active, two inactive. And uh, my active time was was over when I moved to uh, to Nashville. In fact, I had a year left on it. But uh, I moved to Nashville January of uh, two thousand, January first. I took a job at a sign company when I first moved to town, selling signs. S I G N company called Fast Signs out of Antioch, and. Uh, I did that for as long as I could do it. And my boss knew I was colorblind. (laughs) They could tell by the way I dressed most of the time. (laughs) That job right there, I got sent home twice from that job to change clothes (laughs) because I showed up and the girls in the office went, "Mm -mm." (laughs) I was in outside sales. So, you know, my job is to, is to go out and try to, try to get us customers and that sort of thing. But <laughs> on two different occasions, I got, I got to work and the, and the ladies in the office went, no, this isn't going to work. <laughs> Tell you what, you go home and bring us back several other shirt options. <laughs> we'll, and we'll let you know. And they were yeah. controlling their outfit that day. <laughs> so I did that for, for as long as I could. And then I, I finally just had to tap out and go, Hey, I don't, I don't have the passion for this. And, I also kind of have a, a natural handicap that keeps me from, you know, from being able to be very successful at it for you. But I had I had several other jobs. The next job I had after that was with a, an industrial pump company at a Carterville, Illinois, uh, called uh, Heartland Pump. Uh, they serviced uh, the, the pumps that dewatered rock quarries and mines and and that sort of thing. So they they could also bypass rivers so the bridges could be built. And uh, one of the gigs that I was able to uh, get for the company was uh, the job of bypassing the Cumberland River in Nashville so that that walk bridge could be built going to the Titan Stadium from downtown. Um, it was one of the biggest jobs I ever uh, I ever got to got to see. So that was fun. And uh, after that, I decided I was going to go ahead and dip my toe in the music business. 
By the way, I was working for Heartland Pump when 9-11 happened. Um, in fact, Amy and I, my, my ex-wife and I, we had just gotten married on the 1st and went on our honeymoon and got back. And I had a, a corporate meeting in, in Illinois in Carbondale. And I was sitting there at the uh, conference room table in Carbondale, Illinois, when we got the news that the uh, planes had hit the World Trade Center. Was that kind of like the decision where you're like, oh, wow, life's really short. I'm going to do this music thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know that that was uh, the cause of the decision. I'd already been been writing songs and uh, singing demos in town and i just thought about you know trying to get trying to get started with a publisher or or try to get started with a with a label nashville was kind of a different place back then um especially in music that music row was kind of like a campus it was like a big college campus everybody knew who all the players were we knew who the writers were who the publishers um, and while there was competition, it was really sportsman like competition. It was, it was the kind of thing like, you know, you hated when somebody hit a home run off your pitcher, but you still kind of admired the home run, <laughs> you know? So that, that's what, uh, that's what the music business felt like back then i loved it when one of my one of my friends had some success you know when somebody got a song cut and and it changed their life and that's that's you know one of the more beautiful aspects of our business is is watching watching your friends succeed and uh, i kind of banded myself together with a few of those friends this was you know after the after the pump company i started a business and restoration insurance restoration i've always had a hand in construction in one way or the other and uh, amy and i started a company called restoration plus uh in hendersonville and we we went to fixing up fire damage and storm damage and all that sort of thing and uh i did a good job at it but i didn't i wasn't a business manager i was able to bring in accounts i just i wasn't able to make a make it a profitable uh, business for us and uh, we ended up having to close our doors but we closed them right at the time that I was had gotten a publishing deal and a record deal offered and was well underway in the in the music business so I don't know it's, it's kind of like uh, you're not supposed to trade horses midstream but the old horse was dead and the new horse was fresh <laughs> and so uh, it made sense to me Absolutely. What was the what was the first like real big decision you had to make in the music industry? Like, what was that first big thing that you're like, oh fuck, like this is a real deal? Like, what was that like kind of turning point? You think? So, Randy Hauser, Dallas Davidson, and I uh, got together and wrote this song that for us was a joke for lack of a better word i mean wasn't a joke we were i lost my breath laughing right that's all because it was kind of a, 
for, for all of us at the time, there was nothing like this song in any of our catalogs. And yet we're the three guys that, that get together and pin this classic. And we knew it right off the bat that this was just stupid enough to be the best, best thing anybody hears for a while. It was a song called Honky Tonk, but Donka Donk. Oh my God. I had no idea you wrote that. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's been a carefully guarded secret for all these years. <laughs> First of all, it comes out of my podcast. Amazing. Awesome. Oh my God. Yes. Tra- uh, who did that? Trace? Yeah. Trace. Adkin. Yeah. Well, uh, before Trace even heard, well, I can't say before he heard the song, there was a there was kind of a back and forth over who was going to record this song. Trace had put it on hold. Uh, and then, you know, Trace at the time was on Capitol Records. And then uh, Tracy Bird was on RCA. And, of course, Tracy Bird wanted the song, too. It was right up his alley. And so there was some uh, controversy over which one of them uh, had the initial hold and was going to record the song first. And then uh, RCA made me an offer to record the song and and release it as my first single. And so as a up and coming writer and wanting to be an artist to get your first record deal offered, basically third party from an email, you know, they didn't even email me directly. They sent an email to uh, Gary Overton at EMI, the publishing company that I, that had offered me a publishing deal, but I hadn't yet signed with them either. And so, you know, this was kind of just like a, it was a third party from another company that I also don't have a deal with. (laughs) And so I didn't, I didn't like the idea of, of, that being my first single because I didn't want to be that guy. You know, it was, it was to me, it was a surefire situation. Any artist who puts that song out for your first song, that's who you are from now on. Mm-hmm. You know, you can follow that up with 10 great songs in a row. You're still that guy. You're the badonka don't guy. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to be that, you know, yeah. I didn't want to be 50 years down the line have still having to do that song <laughs> every night every when it was just show. it was just a joke you know something I some I just wrote laughing my ass off in a writing room one day with my buddies you know we write songs like that too I've written songs that are for no one's consumption <laughs> <laughs> and I know you well enough to know that yes you have <laughs> It's not even good comedy. It's just it's just some irritating echoes inside my brain that kind of need a place to manifest themselves other than my head. <laughs> That's good, though. So that was your ber- first big song. And then what was your first? Was um, So you started writing for George, right? Well, um, before Badonka Donk came out on the radio, I had already uh, landed a deal with B&A Records and got the dollar on the radio. So my, my first outing at country music was, was as a, uh, an artist. And uh, I can remember a, a, a week on the charts where 
the dollar and Badonka Donk were right next to each other, somewhere around number fifty-five or you know some, something like that. But, uh, and but I enjoyed it, you know. I enjoyed going around and trying to get this thing off the ground. I thought I had a pretty good song. Uh, country radio begged to differ. <laughs> they didn't think I had anything uh, worth their attention, and so they didn't. They didn't play that song and. It wasn't too long after that B and A dropped me, you know, uh, just kind of a failed effort. And uh, after they dropped me in February of '06, a few months had gone by, and it and it started kind of sinking in that damn that that was my one shot. That was it. I can't believe that was it, but that that was it. It was it was one and done. And uh, Amy and I were were separated at the time, and I had written uh, a lot of songs, kind of kind of dealing with that. Well, I was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, I think in June of that year, about to do a show, and I got a call from Irv Woolsey, uh, my manager at the time, and uh, Irv said, you know, he was also George Strait's manager. He said they were down in Key West and uh, recording some songs at Jimmy Buffett's uh, studio down there. He called me up and he said, hey, just wanted to let you know uh, George loved your song. And in fact, he just got done recording it. Oh, my God. What did that I, feel like? I said, hell, that's best news I've gotten in a while. What <laughs> what song? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell did you play him? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What song? I know what a, song, but that's amazing. A song I, I wrote with uh, Whispering Bill Anderson and, and Buddy Cannon called Give It Away. And uh, I, I mean, it was one of the, the that, that, uh, that, that conversation right there brought me to tears, mm-hmm. you know? I hung up the phone and all I could do was I felt thankful, but I also felt uh, a reprieve and not, not just by anybody, by the king of country music, by the guy who knows country songs better than anybody at country radio, you know, George Strait himself, you know, basically reached down and called me and said, "Uh uh-uh, where are you going? You know, that that made me feel like I wasn't done here, that I still had some more to to offer up before they just throw me away. And uh, they put that song on the charts. And I mean, it it went straight to number one, had a big old time with it. But it it also broke the record for the, uh, the artist with the most number one hits. Before George, it was Conway Twitty. And then Give It Away was the one he broke the tape with. Wow. That's so amazing. So you you started in, what did you say, 2001, and it took until 2007 for you to? I moved to Nashville in 2000. 2000. Uh, I think I, I, I got my first record deal in 2005 was dropped in 2006 George recorded give it away that year and uh kind of got me back back in the right direction 
uh, I spent the rest of 06 writing songs and in 07 went in the studio to record and uh, we recorded that album uh, that Lonesome Song album we recorded a version of it in fact you may say that I got that album on the internet at the end of that year and at the time nobody was releasing songs on the internet they were still we were still in the old format here in town where you know it had to go through the the whole industry and pass the sniff test at every turn before everybody would would salute and and kind of help help it gain some traction but i released it on the internet when we got the needle moving you know, with with album sales and and that sort of thing, we got the attention of a couple of labels. And Luke Lewis called me up uh, and offered me a deal with Mercury Records in in two thousand and eight, and they wanted to put In Color out as a single. In in oh seven, after we recorded uh, the session that that we made that initial version of of Lonesome Song out of Dave Cobb was a producer in uh, Los Angeles. He was producing rock bands and, and we, we had a, a connection through Shooter Jennings. Well, Dave would call me twice a week, go, Hey, when you coming? When are you coming? I want to make a record with you. And I kept telling Dave, I've already I've already made my record, man. I'm you know, I'm I'm pretty pretty focused on this right now. Well that's fine. You, you've got all that stuff recorded. That's fine. Go ahead and put that out. I'm talking about the next one. Let's get together and work on the next one. Well, finally, I I said, man, I'm all right. You know what? I'm coming to L.A. to do this thing. I'll be there for three or four days. Let, let's get in the studio and record. I got nothing else to do during the day, you know. So let, let's go see what else we can do. We got in the studio in L.A. and made an entirely different album and by the time uh the label was ready to release that lonesome song i i had better songs and were different songs so i pulled a few off put a few on and and that lonesome song became a mix of the version my band in nashville made and the dave cobb sessions and in fact the guitar song was all of that the cutting room floor of lonesome song and it was 26 songs long something like that it was it was a double album and all it was was everything we didn't put on lonesome song it was it was you know basically a year's year's worth of writing what made you not give up during 2000s basically from when they cut you to when george when you got that call from George, because I think so many people like, I don't care what industry you're in. We all have these moments in life where you're like, okay, they don't like me. I'm not good at this. I'm going to quit. Like what kept you going? Well, it's, it's true in any regard at anything you do, but especially true in the music business that the last one to quit wins. (laughs) That's true in a boxing ring. That's true in combat. Uh, that's true in pinball. I don't care what it is you're aspiring to do. The last one to quit wins. That's the one standing at the end of the the contest. I didn't have any quit in me, and I still don't. I never never have just laid down 
but life just kicked the shit out of me for no reason. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't subscribe to that form of, you know, managing your fear. I'm definitely on the other end of it where you grab the biggest stick you can find and get in there and, you know, you're either going to win or I'm going to make you kill me. (laughs) And so I I don't think, you know, that since quitting wasn't an option, then everything else was. What what are the tools? What what did I have? I, well, I got a, the ability to write a song. I've got a guitar, and I've got some time, and I've got plenty of things I need to write about. Those, those songs were not necessarily for everybody else to hear, and they weren't songs that I was hoping would uh, would get me back on country radio. I didn't write those songs for country radio. I wrote them for me. I wrote them because that's what I was feeling, but it was also what I needed to hear. And, uh, you know, since then I've had, I've had a lot of fans tell me that, well, you know, that, that song right there, it impacted me or that song got me through prison. That song got me through a divorce and I, I, I get it. I've had songs that did that for me. You know, I've had to tell Willie and Merle and George Jones, you know, the man, that song got me through a rough patch. And so I understand it, but that wasn't the purpose of that song. It was to get me through a rough patch. That that was my my therapy. And so quitting wasn't an option. And I don't know that there was this idea of ultimate success through that, but it certainly made made for some music, made you know, it made for some healing for me. And uh since then it's made a career for me. You know, in, in spite of country music or the country music industry as a whole disregarding me, I don't have to go away. You know, I don't have to participate in the things that they do. Uh, now, I, I like to think that country music radio and I have a pact. They don't play my music and I don't play theirs. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that. That's so good. I think, it's you know, that's exactly it right like i feel like you're so we didn't i didn't even mention how we met we met on the golf course at a charity golf tournament and you know you came over and just sat in my cart and i'm like oh fuck i know who this guy is but we ended up talking and obviously we've been friends for two or three years now but i think it's something that most people may or may not know about you and probably don't since you don't do a lot of interviews but you are so fucking smart like you are like literally like geniusy type of smart. But I think also the thing that you have, which most people don't have is you're a hundred percent. Like I will not quit. I have that exact same thing. Like I know that enough about myself that like the only reason why I'm successful is because I don't fucking quit. And like, I am so fucking competitive. And I know that's very similar to you. And I think that, you know, even during this pandemic where so many people are literally packing it in, you a hundred percent are just like, okay, what can I get out of this pandemic? How can I still thrive? How can I still show up? And I love it before we turned the mic on, you know, you started telling me about, you know, how you're like after a few weeks of going, Oh my God. Yay. Amazing. I get to sit in my, I actually get to sleep in my own bed for a few weeks. And then you're like, Oh fuck, this is going to last a hot minute. Okay. What can I do? And I, I love that about you. I, and I think that so many people need to hear that. I think People need to know that, like, it's not always going to work out as planned. Like, pretty much when you started back in 2006, you didn't really realize that 14 years later, you would not be able to play music. Like, for the rest of your life, 
you were supposed to be able to play music. Yeah. Well, that was the idea. <laughs> do this until you die doing it. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, and you gave it a good whirl for a long time. Obviously, we know that. That's a whole nother conversation. But I think, too, like what you said is you're just 100% are never going to give up. You're just like going to keep going. You're going to keep deciding. You're, you don't let the fact that country music radio may not have accepted you. You literally have people... I've seen it like literally live and die for your music and country music told you, you weren't good enough to be on their radio. Well, they're probably right. I don't make the decisions for country music radio. I don't decide who gets whatever of the year at the hand me a trophy award show either. You know, it's, I'm I'm glad for the people who, who those things, uh, are for, you know, but that's not what music was about for me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to have a plaque on my wall to tell me that, um, that I've done something good. You know, my, I don't, I don't put plaques and trophies out in my house for, for people to see that I've had a, a career in music. They're not, they're not necessary for that. Um, the, the, the awards that I get are the fans telling me their stories, the fans sitting there singing the songs back to me at the shows. That's, that's the reward that I get, uh, for the path that I've chosen. I get to know that, you know, that the music that I've written and recorded and and sang every night at my shows, that it had an impact on people's lives. That was the purpose. And in that regard, it it has been successful, even if there's no plaque or no trophy to to show for it. Well, and something else that you've done that I want to make sure everyone knows about, and like, obviously, I was gutted it couldn't have been there last year, and I was gutted that we didn't have it this year. I would love for you to talk about the Nikki Mitchell Foundation because this is really important to you. And I think that most people need to know about this and it touches so many people's lives. And this is a big deal to you. And one of the blessings that has come from not only touching people's lives and not only your music, like literally hitting people's souls, but the impact that you've been able to make. So I met Nikki Mitchell in 2002. I met Nikki Mitchell through Richie Albright. Richie Albright was uh, Waylon's drummer for all the way back to the 60s. And uh, after Waylon passed away, in fact, this would have been the week before or the week of, this would have been around February. I had a show that I had booked in my hometown in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, the Jubilee City Fest. And I was going to be opening for Wayne Mills and Randy Travis. And I wanted a good band to take down there and play this show. And I called Richie Albright to come play drums with us because I felt like uh, his style would work best with mine. And he told me, he said, man, I haven't been on the road uh, now in, in a while. And I'm, I'm enjoying not being on the road. <laughs> he said, I've got, got some drummers I could, I could aim you toward. 
uh, he said, I like your album. I like your music and, and I like your attitude. And I think, I think you're going to do well. But, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to, going to bow out on the show. And I said, well, no problem. I appreciate all the help you can give me. And he gave me this, this, uh, address. And he said, you need to go here and you need to meet Nikki. Okay. He didn't have to explain why he, he just, you know, I, I know he was trying to help. He said, you need to go meet Nikki. I walked in the, in the front door of Waylon's office, which, uh, I think it was at 17 and grand or 17 and edge hill. One of those two. Anyway, uh, I walked in the front door and the receptionist, I said, I'm looking for Nikki. And this guy just kind of pointed over that way. And I looked over and saw Nikki Mitchell. And years later, you know, I, I told her, I said, first time I saw you, my heart melted. She went, <laughs> oh, I said, right in my pants. And she went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what you would say. I know you so well. Okay. Yep. Of course you did. That's exactly what happened. It was, it was one of those situations where I just got in a trance. You know, I could see the little heart bubbles blowing around my, my Oh, head. I love Nikki it. She was drop dead gorgeous. She oh. was just absolutely stunning, beautiful. And so, um, but she was also the manager of all things Waylon. Nikki brought me into the Waylon Jennings family, as it were. And she always kind of held a special place in my life as, as a mentor of sorts, because it, when, when I couldn't figure out which door to open, which opportunity was the better one, Nikki was always the one there telling me, you know, you got to trust your instinct. I can't give you the answers because only you know how you feel. And only you know which, which way feels the best to you. And I'm just going to, caution you you got to always go with that even if it bites you in the ass you got to trust that instinct and so years later after hank cochran passed away in 2010 from pancreatic cancer nikki called me up she needs to come to the studio and she she'd had a doctor's appointment had some bad news she came by and told me she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and uh i said all right Having just been through that with with Hank, I, I knew we were in for for a rough a rough situation here. Hank went a very long time with pancreatic cancer. I mean, he he went years, which is not common. You know, most people who are diagnosed with it are they, they don't they don't go six weeks. You know, some some even shorter than that for for somebody to go that long is just uncommon. And uh, Nikki, I think altogether went about 31 months with pancreatic cancer. She did every procedure available at the time, including uh, Whipple procedure, which is where they remove all nine vital organs from the body to keep it from metastasizing to try to hold it at bay. And uh, she had that procedure done at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And uh, through Nikki, I met Rhonda Miles, Rhonda and Nikki. Rhonda was Nikki's flight instructor when Nikki was getting her pilot's license. And these two ladies did a trip around the world in a single engine mall uh, airplane 
Uh, and for those of you who don't know, a mall is not much bigger than a paper airplane. It's, <laughs> Are you <laughs> so, kidding? No way. A mall is it's about the size, I guess, it's similar to uh, a single engine Cessna or a single engine Piper or something like that. It's, I don't mean to uh, exaggerate it. It's not that that small. But it's, it's small. It's small. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a small plane. It's about a four seater and, you know, with a little baggage and uh and they, they did a trip around the world. They they did a, a flight. I think it's called the Flight of the Rotunda Rondo. Smack me in the head with a newspaper for forgetting. <laughs> um, but it was basically a flight that uh, some female Russian pilots performed in World War II. And uh, Rhonda and Nikki went and, and performed that same flight as kind of a salute. Uh, to these ladies it was like the 50 year uh, salute to them in 1995 i think that's right wow that's so cool after nikki was diagnosed Rhonda basically retired from being a pilot and became nikki's caretaker took her everywhere she had to go to get treatments uh took care of, of anything nikki needed help with Rhonda was there and uh Rhonda introduced, uh, or Nikki introduced Rhonda and I, and before she passed away, told us that she wanted us to start a foundation, the Nikki Mitchell Foundation, and proceeds to benefit patients of pancreatic cancer. And uh, Rhonda and I were so gung-ho about the idea, you know, Nikki, it wasn't the first time either one of us has been challenged by Nikki to perform some miracle or some feat of, you know, ex- extraordinary uh, accomplishment that neither one of us had any idea how to do. We had to find out because neither one of us knew what is a foundation? What does <laughs> foundation do? We raise money, then do what? <laughs> so uh, we had a lot of reading to do. We had a lot of conversations to do back and forth. And, and over the years, we've we've raised a lot of money millions uh to, to help families and to help to help people who are diagnosed you know the, the first thing is you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer you got to quit your job so that you can survive well when you quit your job out goes your health benefits you just lost your medical benefits and the next thing is you're trying hard not to go bankrupt while you're trying to survive and so you end up with people who don't have money to cover the power bill. They don't have money to pay for groceries. They can't put gas in the car to get back and forth to their treatments. And so uh, the foundation initially began so that we could fund research uh, for pancreatic cancer. But when we realized that, you know, we weren't drawing the kind of money that can fund research, we don't, we don't have millions to be able to build a, a facility somewhere and sponsor doctors to do this kind of work. But what we can do with our money is gas cards, uh, groceries, cleaning. Hell, Rhonda bought somebody a wood stove because they, they, they didn't have a way to heat the house. She, she bought them a wood burning stove and got somebody that separate, sets them up with firewood. Every winter. Uh, I mean, we, we've just done countless things like that because every need is different. You know, you may have somebody else that has a need for uh, a cleaning service. You know, we, we've allocated money to do all manner of uh, things taking care of these folks. 
So the Nikki Mitchell Foundation is dear to my heart, not just because it's got Nikki's name on it, but because pancreatic cancer has hit me personally and in my family with my uncle Barry passing away from it. Uh, T.W., the guy who mixes all my albums and mixes our front of house, T.W.'s brother uh, died from it. And the countless uh, patients who have come to our foundation over the years that have passed away. You know, we were the last hug they got from humanity on their way out was from the Nikki Mitchell Foundation. And it was it's it's almost been set up as kind of a way uh, to embrace those people to back to their maker. Absolutely. I'll be sure to tag that in the in the notes as well. And it's so interesting. I, a friend of mine who I follow on social media before I knew anything about the Nikki Mitchell Foundation, obviously, I know a lot of it through you and I'll hopefully fingers crossed next year, the golf tournament will be back on the golf tournament and the concert. Oh, what? I hope so too. God, I hope so. But the uh, I'll, it was interesting because a friend of mine posted something and I was like, oh my God, the Nikki Mitchell Foundation and his mom passed away from it. They're, they live in Nashville, actually. His wife is a candle maker. So yeah, it's just uh, six degrees of separation when it comes to when it comes to that, which is, you know, obviously. So it's my turn to brag on you. We oh. invited you to come to the tournament that year, uh, last year. And you initially said, absolutely. I said, we would love to have you come be a guest speaker uh, because you're just one of the most motivating people I know. And, uh, of course, you said, absolutely, I will 100% be there. And then you called me a couple of months after that to back out and go, hey, uh, I, I would love to come and do it. Please keep me in mind for next year. But I got to pull out this time because you were going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It was for sick kids. For sick kids. You had your own mission you had to do. I which I absolutely respect. And in lieu of you being at the tournament, sent a an extremely sizable amount <laughs> of, of money in donation to the Nikki Mitchell Foundation. So And uh, I would I would do it time and time again. I I adore you. And you did the same thing for me. You sponsored me and I sent a video and I sent a big cash check. And I, that's what we're supposed to do. I mean, you know, you and I, we have not always had it easy. Obviously, we didn't dive into all of the things all over the place. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. But one thing that, you know, is very common between you and I is the fact that we have a very blessed life. We're extremely excited for what we get to do and we get to help other people along the way. And we connect with amazing people like you, like you and I, like, let's be honest. We were at a really fucking posh ass golf tournament, getting treated amazing, doing all the fucking things. And then we get to go out and bless other people from doing that. I'm not going to pretend that my life isn't fucking awesome. And trust me, I've been on your million plus dollar bus, which is fucking boss too. So you have a pretty damn good life there brother i'll tell you the, the first thing that impressed me about you and this was what motivated me to walk up i'm an introvert i don't meet totally people. i am so blessed that you're even doing this i'm shocked and introduce myself to anybody uh but i i could at the time my my golf game was just absolutely horrific i couldn't knock one off a tee and you're out there with all of these other golfers and i mean some of them shoot as good as the professionals and i'm listening to you kind of 
talking smack with these guys. <laughs> I was like, where in the hell does that confidence come from on a golf course? And how the hell can I even get like 10% of that? Because if I just had a little more confidence, I think I could, I could probably, you know, improve my game a little bit. And that's when I walked up to introduce myself and go, Hey, how do you do this? <laughs> what, what is it that you know that I need to know? And, uh, I tell you what, over, over the years, I've, I've learned a thing or two. I can not only knock one off the tee now i can i can send it a pretty good ways down range <laughs> no shit you can for sure but that's one of the things that i love about you too is like yeah a hundred percent you are one of the most introverted people and it's it's so funny because most people would assume in the industry that you're in because everyone wants a piece of your time everyone wants a bite of you everyone wants autographs and signatures and all the things and it's great sometimes but also too for a person who definitely finds that difficult it's nice to know that you know it's not that you're an asshole it's just that you're like truly just such a good human being who likes quiet time you're like i just need a little fucking alone time people that's all i need (laughs) (laughs) well most people don't don't see um that they don't see the whole story Mm -hmm. you know if uh if you, you can't get your five minutes with me, it might be that somebody else got your five minutes. <laughs> if, I, if my battery's dead, believe me, I'm the I'm the last guy you want to meet. You just think you want to meet me, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't I don't like disappointing mm-hmm. people. If I know I've got nothing in the tank, I'm probably going to avoid the conversation, you know, or just stay home until I feel like I've got got more to offer well next year you should have so much to fucking offer after this year (laughs) a funny thing happened uh you know kylie and i we were like extended family to george jones george and nancy before uh, george passed away i mean every time george saw kylie boy he walked up and gave her a big old hug picked her up off the ground you know back when she was three four five years old and uh well, Kylie and I were walking into a, a store at the mall down in Cool Springs one day. And I looked in the car over there and I saw George. And I said, come on, baby, let's go over here and say hey to George. We started walking towards his car. And without looking at the out the window to see who it was, <laughs> he just felt somebody walking up close to him. <laughs> cranked up his car and drove to the other end of the parking lot. (laughs) I laughed. I took Kylie. I said, it's okay, baby. He didn't see us. (laughs) He didn't know it was us. He was like, where's he going? (laughs) He's going over there. (laughs) You don't want to talk to us, babe, but I'm sure you pulled that one a few times to yourself. I'll probably have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's that's how an introvert works. They're like, Mm-mm. <laughs> no chance. None of that. Uh, well, I love talking to you. I always ask one final question and I want to ask you the same thing. What is one decision you were afraid to make, but when you finally made it, it either ended up better or you learned, even if it ended up shitty, you learned something great from it. The decision to get into the music business was was not an easy one. 
it, it wasn't one where you had a sure foot you could put down. And it kind of feels like, you know, if you remember the old Tarzan movies or the show on TV where he goes from one vine to another. Well, before you turn loose of this vine, you like to grab another vine, right? You like to make sure you got something else to go to. The music industry was a situation where you had to turn loose of the vine you had before you could grab the next one. And so for a period of time, you are vineless <laughs> and still suspended in midair. And if you don't find something to grab soon, there's going to be that sudden stop on the end of that drop that hurts. So that would be a situation where I would say that there was a lot of faith involved, but there was also a lot of momentum. There was also a, a lot of things in my life kind of pointing me in that direction. And it wasn't very easy to turn loose of the things that I had, but it was time and it was necessary. And if I had tried to cling to any of those things at the time, I would have missed the, the entire thing. Um, Without that faith driving that decision, I'd have crashed. I wouldn't have made it. I love that. I love that so much. Okay, so where can everyone find you right now? Or where can they find your music or where anything? Like, where can we just see you? Well, I'm in hiding. <laughs> We're actually taking your private pilot's license. By the time this comes out, you'll actually yeah. be a certified pilot. But besides flying in the air, where? Oh, well, Randy Hauser and I are talking about doing some acoustic shows uh, at the start of next year. Of course, that, that's probably going to be February before we're able to get it all put together. And, and I don't mean just, you know, I mean just me and Randy, like not not a band. We're just going to be me and him sitting there telling our stories and playing our songs and and that sort of thing. And Randy's also uh, working on a pilot's license. So, Is he really? Well, we'll probably both be certified uh, airman by the time this comes out. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I will 100% if at all means, if by all means, you can fly by, pick me up and take me to your show. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. I think we, we'll be able to do that soon. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you. Yes, ma'am. Y'all take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Y'all, I am unbelievably grateful at how many of you are resonating with this podcast. I also know that many of you are asking yourself, gosh, what difference in my life and my business would it make to have a coach walking beside me day in and day out to make sure I show up deciding it is my turn? You guys, this is exactly what I do in my coaching practice, and I would love to jump on a free discovery call with you to see if you and I would be the perfect fit to make sure you show up every single day confidently in your purpose, making a profit and living a life that you love. Check the show notes to book that call or the link in my Instagram bio. Thank you all so much for joining me on today's episode of the Decide It's Your Turn podcast. If today's episode resonated with you at all, please share it with a friend. Also head on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review and a comment. What is it that you want us to talk about that'll help you realize that at any moment and any day, you too can decide it's your turn. I'm Christina LeCure. I'll see you next time. <laughs>